This sermon was preached by Juan Quap, head pastor and church planner of Maranatha Grace in Inglewood, New Jersey. Maranatha Grace was planted in 2010 and is seeking to reach New Jersey and uptown Manhattan with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.maranathagrace.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 5, 1-15, and it can be found on page 834 in the paperback Bibles below. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everyone. Um, My name is Juan. There's two cups today. (laughs) Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Maranatha, and it really is a a pleasure to be here. It's a privilege to be able to uh, preach God's Word, and um, we're in the waning weeks of our current series, Galatians. Here we stand. This is message number 13, entitled Free at Last, and uh, if you would all please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we are gathered here as a church, and yet we are, despite being 2,000 years removed from the time of the Galatians, we are in so many ways no different from these Galatians that Paul addresses. We are like scattered sheep often, with minds and hearts that wander away from your truth your truth that liberates us from our bondage to sin, shame, and condemnation and empowers us to life abundant and free. So Lord, as we've sung already and as we've heard in your scriptures, Lord, we acknowledge that it's your scandalous gospel, your gospel of grace that covers us. We acknowledge that it is more than enough to lead us back to you this morning. So, Holy Spirit, we ask you for eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are pierced to believe. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for the first four chapters of our study in Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul has been digging very deep um, theologically. He's been retelling, he's been reminding these Galatian believers of the richness of the faith that they have the richness of the doctrines of justification, the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of union with Christ, and all these things by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. 
period. And up to this point, we've, been, we, we've seen how Paul has loved them to the extent that he would risk. He would risk loving them not only with tender-hearted words and actions and appeals, but he would risk loving them tough. He would call them out on their sin. He would call out false teachers and expose their distortions and perversions. He's been, as we've learned, as we've studied, livid, extremely, just angry. He's been astonished, perplexed, but he's also been in anguish about what's happening in these churches that were being preyed upon, not P-R-A-Y, but P-R-E-Y. They were being preyed upon by false teachers. In a sense, he's been resetting the theological foundations that these Christians need, that they need to build their lives on. They've been shaken up, their foundations, by the Judaizers who distorted and perverted the truth of the gospel, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul lovingly pens this letter. He writes to these churches, and he does battle against these Judaizers, and he helps them do battle, the Christians, against their sin. They're being deceived, and they're allowing themselves to be deceived, and he knows that this will lead to destruction. So in these next two chapters that I'm going to, uh, Pastor Eric is preaching next week, and then I'll finish off Galatians. In these next two chapters of Galatians 5 and 6, Paul still talks theology. He never stops from talking and teaching on theology, but he also delves into the practical. He delves into the life implications of the scandalous truths that believing and trusting in Jesus alone for everything will have glorious results and implications. So, Um, Here are the three points that I hope will help you grasp the freedom that we have at last through faith in Jesus. Point number one, freedom of conscience of our past, present, and future. Point number two, freedom from our performance to perform. I didn't make a mistake there this week, all right? Freedom from our performance to perform and freedom to be slaves. Point one freedom of conscience of our past, present, and future. In 1941, uh, FDR, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he spoke of four famous freedoms. The United States was watching and waiting and hoping, perhaps on the brink of war, and he spoke of these four famous freedoms, freedom of speech everywhere, freedom of worship everywhere, the freedom of want everywhere, and the freedom from fear everywhere. Little did he know, I assume, presume, that it would cost this country, of which I am a citizen, hundreds of thousands of lives to buy this freedom, to maintain this freedom. Over 400,000 deaths of American, mostly soldiers and civilians. And it would cost this country hundreds of billions of dollars and it's still counting believe it or not because they're they're they keep finding more stuff to pay for that flowed from world war ii hundreds of billions of dollars to purchase to maintain this freedom well the freedom that paul has been elaborating on even before today's text is infinitely more profound infinitely more definitive infinitely more valuable than any freedom that we as a country or that we may experience individually. Our constitutionally guaranteed freedoms are merely glimpses and hints of the ultimate freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul do in this text? He warns them of this, the truth, of the unfortunate truth that the church is going to constantly be threatened by a slavery but a specific type of slavery, a slavery of works, a slavery unto the law, unto the flesh, a slavery of works orientation, right? This is our broken bent. This is, this is, this is the way that we kind of are inclined to, to drift in our Christian experience and non-Christian experience as well. We are always about meriting favor. 
we're always about doing what we can to be accepted. And I've talked a lot about this in previous weeks, so I won't get too much into it. But this is why, this is what Paul warns them of, and this is why he warns them, because this is our sinful, sinful bent. The freedom that you Christians in Galatia, that you have in the gospel, it can be lost. It can be lost experientially. It can be lost in the day today. It can slip from your grasp unless, as was read, thank you, Eunice, unless you stand firm, right? Verse 1, stand firm, therefore. That's a military term I learned. And it basically means, it it, it, uh, connotes this idea of, of keeping alert, being strong. And check this one out. This is cool. Sticking together. Right? See the, the corporate um, entailments there. Sticking together and thereby resisting the attack of the Judaizers and the evil one. What he does is, uh, as we often see Paul doing, he gives this indicative imperative in the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. So what is he saying? You're freed men. You're freed women. That's an indicative. That's who you are. Stand firm, therefore. Because of who you are, stand firm. That's an imperative. Do something. And this is the warning that he gives. Paul gives this warning often in the New Testament in his writings. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Right? Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Sorry, this is a little too low. My bad. Uh, Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. So that's pretty tender language. That's exhorting language. The the Corinthians were kind of a messed up, divided church, so he was a little more tough with them. However, whatever circumstance was, Paul is saying, stand firm. You have a freedom of conscience. Really? Yes. Of your past, of your present, and your future. So stand firm. In the past, we've, um, we've looked into and studied uh, not very much in depth about uh, the, the, the purpose of the law and the uses of the law. A great reformer, John Calvin, he, one of the ways that he, he, he kind of taught that um, the law was used was that um, it, it exposed our sin and unrighteousness as a mirror. So when, when a sinner looks into the mirror of God's law, he sees or she sees herself as who she really is, depraved, sinful, wretched and undone, guilty and condemned, and in need of forgiveness and cleansing, in need of a savior. But what else does the law do? The law is the tutor, is the teacher that points people uh, to Jesus Christ, to the savior, to the one who can cleanse, the one who can acquit and exonerate, right? Free from guilt. And that's what we have in the gospel. We have freedom of conscience of our past sins. We do. We do experientially dwell on our past. We dwell on our our family members passed, and we bring it back, we, we regurgitate it, we rehash it, we make ourselves suffer unnecessarily, and them suffer the guilt again and again and again. But that doesn't have to be. Because our conscience is cleansed of our past. We have free and full forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And Paul warns them, don't lapse into this idea that you have to re-win your acceptance, redo your forgiveness, remerit your justification. You're free. Don't submit to that yoke of slavery ever again. You've been freed from that burden. 
freed from the tyranny of that of the law. And he brings in circumcision, of course, because this is what he's been talking about. This is the big issue that the Judaizers uh, have, have brought to the fore. And some of you, if you haven't heard any of this Galatians, you're like, and if you're not a Christian, you're thinking, circumcision? Well, why are we talking about circumcision in church? Because this was a religious thing. It wasn't just a, it, it was a, yes, it was a marker. It was what the, 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 the covenant, the chosen people of God were to do to their eight-day old sons to show that they were cut, to show that they were, were, were set apart for God. Well, the Judaizers lied to the Gentiles and basically said, the Gentile Christians, and they basically said, you need to add circumcision. You need to add it into your religious practice, into your system of faith. And Paul says, no. Paul says, in fact, if you do, he says, look, Paul, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage. If you look at other translations, it says, Christ will be of no benefit to you. No value is what the NIV says. No profit to you is what the King James Version says. I've said it numerous times, and I'll say it at least one more time today now. (laughs) But the Judaizers lied to the Gentile converts, and they taught them that they had to do more than put their faith in Christ in order to obtain God's grace, in order to maintain their justification, their right standing before God. They preached Jesus and Jesus but. But listen to what a couple, a scholar and a pastor say. I don't know. I think, um, actually, I'll read it. John Stott says, if you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. See that? If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. You can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ. I'm going to say that Dr. Keller ripped off John Stott uh, because uh, Stott wrote his commentary first. But you can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ. If it's Jesus and Jesus but, you're taking Jesus out of the picture altogether. And that's what Paul is, is, is telling these Galatians. The NIV verse 2 says, for verse 2 starts off, Mark my words, if you accept circumcision, you are going to be reheaping onto yourself the entirety of the law. That means you're going to be back in this system, in this, this, this endless, hopeless cycle of trying to earn your way into relationship with God. And what did we learn about the law? If you break one law, you've broken them all, right? When a police pulls you over, he doesn't say, hey, you broke a law, right? He says, you broke the law, right? It applies also with this, with the word of God, with, with the Christian faith. If you broke a law, you've broken the law. And Paul says, you, you know where this is going to get you. It's going to get you nowhere fast. If you think you can keep the letter of the law, what about the heart of the law? It goes deeper. You, you can't handle that kind of truth. You can't handle the, the sinful motivations that, that compel you to obey the letter of the law, right? I told you growing up, I was a very pretty, okay, they might disagree, <laughs> my parents. I was pretty obedient and dutiful, but I wasn't honoring them in my heart, right? I was doing it just to get them off my case, just to keep them you know, at arm's length just to look good before other people, it goes deeper. And Paul's warning them, don't put yourself under these demands and curses and condemnation again. You don't have to meet the demands because Christ has met them perfectly for you. And yet, despite you not meeting these demands perfectly and Christ meeting them perfectly, he died for your disobedience. And he took upon himself the curse and the shame as he bore our condemnation. You're free. You're free. Some of you are struggling with your past right now. You're not so recent past. This past week, which is pretty present. Some of you are are thinking about ways that you can just kind of, you know, 
rebel against God, perhaps even now in the present. God has freed you through Christ Jesus from this. Helene Cooper is, uh, I'm not sure if she's the current White House correspondent for the New York Times, but she's a, a woman who was born in Liberia. And in a book that she wrote, which is kind of autobiographical, um, The House of Sugar Beach, she talks about, tells about her time growing up during the Liberian Revolution. And she shares about this one specific incident where her house was broken into by soldiers. And these soldiers were bloodthirsty and they were out for sensual just pleasure and, and, and they wanted to make the people they were trying to conquer and overrule, you know, uh, suffer. So they took Helene and her sister down to their basement and they were intending to gang rape them. And right as they were about to commit this atrocity, the basement door, well, the door that led to the basement where they were with these bloodthirsty men who were going to commit some atrocious things, flew open. Who was it? It was, it was their mom. And the mom boldly demanded that these soldiers release her daughters on the terms that they could take her. And the men agreed to her terms. Helene and her sister were released, and for the next hour or so, they hid in their rooms, listening to the brutalities being committed by these men who took their turns ravaging their mom, bringing upon her suffering and shame and even the condemnation of others. Jesus substituted himself in this way for us. And he took that suffering and he took that shame and he took that condemnation and he took it away from us forever and ever. So there's no more. There's freedom of conscience. No more slavery of conscience. Slavery to our conscience. So despite us still feeling the pangs of, of past sin haunting us and debilitating us and, 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 and affecting our relationships and condemning us, right? And bringing us back onto that endless, that, that, that hopeless treadmill of, of cleaning ourselves up before the Lord and before one another. Paul says, you are free of your past sin. You are free of your present struggle. You are free of your present sin. You are free of the future sin because in Christ Jesus, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Amen. As, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I'm so, that was so cool that Pastor read you 103, right? Psalm 103. This is the second portion of the next portion of that text. His love covers all offenses, is what the Bible tells us. The, the, the writer of Proverbs, it might have been Solomon in, in 10, 12b. His love covers all offenses. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he, what, sent. And not only did he send his only son, he crushed his only son. That we should not perish, but that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Romans 8. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the... Um, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, for God has done what the law, weakened in the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he became God incarnate. He took on uh, the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul makes a couple very important points, too, in verse 5, which support this contrast that he kind of, um, you know, uh, set up in verses 2 through 4. The first thing he does is he, he, he touches, as was read, upon this future hope of righteousness. He says literally, verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope 
of righteousness. Now, the reason why I want to bring this up is because just as a quick, not so much as an aside, a really good Bible translation can make all the world of difference in how you understand in uh, Scripture and apply it. Because for those of you who are, you know, NIVers, right? <laughs> you international version, um, you know, uh, those who, who, who use an NIV Bible, NIV is a good translation. It's a faithful translation. It's a dynamic, general dynamic equivalency translation where it's like, you know, like thoughts and, and, and phrases are, tra- are translated over pretty um, accurately, very accurately. But the ESV and the New American Standard are more literal translations. Well, the literal rendering of this text should be, um, the, as was read, sorry, Eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. The NIV, for those of you who have it, if you notice, says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Now, the reason why I want to bring this up is because we're not awaiting the righteousness. We have the righteousness. But we're awaiting the hope that we have for the future righteousness which has already given us hope for the past, the present. And, and this is what Paul is, is warning them of by bringing them these truths that God has them. God has them firmly in his grip of grace. So you can have hope. Not the flimsy hope that the word kind of seems to mean in English, but the, the hope that's spoken of in Hebrews 11, the hope that uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The conviction of things not seen. Paul is saying, you possess this already, this justification, and it saved you from your past. It's sustaining you in your present, and it will deliver you and leads you to persevere into the future. God's grace covers all the bases. And that leads us to our second point. And our second and third points are much shorter than our first. Freedom from our performance to perform. Verses 7 through 12, we hear about Paul bringing into um, the the conversation in his letter uh, the running, right, metaphor. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Wait, running well, uh, obeying the truth. Didn't Paul just say we were freed from this kind of stuff? Yes, but it must be explained clearly. It must be not, I don't want to say qualified. Basically, we need to understand it in the proper biblical context. We are no longer bound to the law. We're no longer bound to circumcision, the rituals, the holy days, as a means of justification, as a means of receiving forgiveness and cleansing the inheritance that we have as heirs with Jesus Christ, as firstborn sons, right? And the reason why they use that that, that word firstborn son or that phrase is because, as in many societies, even now, the oldest son gets everything. Or gets most of everything. That's what he is trying to convey here. So if you're performing for these things, then you're, you're, you're not walking in step with the gospel. You're not understanding the truth that I preached to you that saved you. You're not understanding what it means to be eternally and unconditionally embraced and loved by God through what Jesus Christ has done. However, for those who are freed from this performance-driven mentality of being accepted by God, on the flip side, on the other side of conversion, on the other side of salvation, we'll say, there is freedom to perform. Freedom from performance to perform. So the Bible talks again and again and again and again, over and over again, about our freedom to not only walk in obedience to the law, but to run well in obedience to the law, since it no longer condemns them. All right? 
So, so, so they are now obeying the law, not out of guilt, not out of a desire to prove themselves, not out of a desire to, to self, uh, not out of desire for self-salvation, but now they are obeying because they are loved. Now they're obeying because they're grateful. Now they are obeying in response to the love of God that has freed them. Freed them from the law, freed them from their sin, freed them, freed them from bondage to, to Satan. And now that they are children of God, they're just frolicking and living life as children who love their father. This is what Paul's getting to getting at. You're free from your performance because Jesus performed. And yet now you can perform acts of love. You can respond to his amazing, scandalous grace. You're freed from the guilt of your imperfect performance trying to live up to God's standards, his perfect standards. But you're also freed from those old drives and those old motivations to live up to these righteous standards. And the Bible makes it clear to us that Christian freedom gives us a new desire, a new motivation, and even a new power to obey God's law. And, and, and it's no longer our means of earning God's favor, but it is God's gift to us. It's God's fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And believe it or not, even though our good works and our acts of obedience and our, our love for our fellow men, even though they may come out kind of you know, ugly and misshapen and, and deformed at times, and even though they still might have, because of our flesh, motivations and, um, and, 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 and reasons right um, that aren't so pure, because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God accepts these flawed efforts. Because the aroma of Christ rises up to God as we seek to, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, obey and run in obedience to the truth. He accepts and he's pleased. So last week I didn't mention it, but to be under the law is not a reference to those who obey the law. So when, 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 when Paul is warning these Galatians, don't be under the law, don't be under the law, he's not saying don't obey the law. You see, so, sometimes when we talk too much about grace or when we talk about the scandalous nature of grace, people have issues with it, really. Because they think that it's going to lead to this theological term, I'm going to use it, they think it's going to lead to antinomianism. Anti means against, nom is law. They think that it's going to lead people into be thinking that, oh, I can do anything, I can live as I please, because grace will abound as sin abounds. And Paul says, no, that is not what it's about. Because if you truly love God, you will respond to his love with love. So what Paul is saying is here is, you were running well, but then the Judaizers started persuading you of legalism. And it literally cut into your race, okay? The NIV, good translation, says it cut into them, right? Ever, have you, you guys remember, I'm going to be dating myself, but I forget, 1984 Olympics? No. The 88? Okay, 80, okay. I didn't even mention the person who was running, so how do you... <laughs> that's, but maybe it is. Mary Decker Slaney, you guys remember? Mary Decker Slaney? Maybe there was a rival... Remember the rivalry between her and Zola Budd, the South African runner who ran barefoot, right? We all thought it was a novelty because she ran barefoot. She was like this, you know, frail figure, and she... Uh, remember their, their, their kind of... Right? Remember at the Olympics, I forget what race it was, she kind of... I don't think she did, but she, she, she clipped Mary Decker Slaney's foot, and she went, you know, she just hit the ground and then Zola Bud was all distracted and, 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 and it, was a, it was a big, big kind of deal. She, she ended up not even winning. But do you guys remember that? No? Okay. 
All right, look it up. Google it, okay? <laughs> but Zola Bud, in a sense, cut into Mary Decker Slaney, and she just hit the ground. That's what legalism does to us. It interrupts our sanctification because it goes, it, it, it leads us to, reg- to, 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 to regress into this, I got to do this to maintain my status before God. That doesn't promote the right kind of spirit-filled obedience. That doesn't lead to the fruit of the spirit being manifested in our lives. Rather, it hinders This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven, even just a little legalism, will spread through the whole loaf. Don't take any other view. And don't believe those Judaizers who are saying that I'm preaching the same thing. Because if I were preaching the same thing, why am I being persecuted is what he's saying in verse 11, I'm preaching the offense of the cross. That is why I'm being persecuted. He's warning them to get back to performing, but to performing unto the Lord with the right motivations and the right heart. Right? You you guys ever hear that song? I, I can't stand it, but audience of one, okay? It's a song where basically it just says, you know, just you, 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 you live and you work and you all things unto the glory of God. You have an audience of one. That, that's, that's to whom we are to perform in us, perform our good works and our good deeds. And we've been given this freedom to perform in a manner that pleases God. What does Paul say in verse 12 as he finishes off this section? It, it gets a little gory here. It gets a kind of, um, you know, I don't know. I don't want to throw high school boys under the bus, but this is what I used to kid around when I was in high school, right? He wishes that the false teachers who are pushing this legalism back onto the Gentiles, this circumcision on believers, what does he say? I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's pretty harsh, if you think about it. But I don't think this is a word of revenge, a word of, you know, just meant purposely or specifically for for, for getting back at them per se, but I believe it's more so a way that Paul communicates his intense, believe it or not, love for for the Galatians. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I wish they would be, I wish they would be cut off from you so that you would not struggle with performing for all the wrong reasons. You've been freed from that. You've been freed from your former pagan life that damned you. That's why he's getting so graphic. It damned them. And hence he's saying, I wish they would emasculate themselves. That is what their false gospel amounts to. False gods pleasing false gods, idolatry. And ultimately, all idolatry leads to what kind of idolatry? Anyone want to take a a stab at that? Self. Who said self? Yes, self-idolatry. Ultimately, we're all trying to, believe it or not, worship a number one, the self. I have idols in my life, and perhaps some of you share in these idols. I'm going to call them demi-idols, okay? Because demi-gods are kind of like lesser gods, gods who have been formed through, you know, in Greek mythology, through the coming together of a, a god and a mortal. So I'll call them demi-idols. Fame, right? Fame, wealth, power, prestige, pleasure, image. I mean, they're all kind of interrelated, but 
these are all demi-idols that we struggle with, that we have, that we erect in our lives. And all these demi-idols, they have a purpose. They serve a greater purpose. Not that they themselves or these things would be glorified and worshipped. Their purpose is to bow down and feed into the ultimate idol that is one, right? I'm the ultimate idol. You know, this is pretty funny, but um, when I heard that um, I was, when I was asked to be a a breakout seminar speaker for the Together for the Gospel conference, um, I struggled a little bit. I struggled with um, just inadequacy. I, I thought, oh my goodness, if you get up there and you blow it, then what are people going to think of you? What, what, what about your image? I don't have an image, okay? I don't have. <laughs> no one knows or cares about me. But I struggled with that. Like, what if I fail? What if I bomb? like I did at Camp Impact a few years ago. I mean, what are people going to think? How are they going to look at me? They don't, they don't look at me. But I also struggled on the flip side as well. Like, you come a long way, baby. You know, like, wow, T for G. You've been asked to be one of the speakers. You, you see how schizophrenic I am? That I can struggle with, with the depths of pride and arrogance when I don't deserve to be proud or arrogant about anything. And depths with the uh, and struggle with with despair and hopelessness because I may fail, and fail miserably. <laughs> I don't know why I was asked. Um, I don't have a silver tongue, and you guys know that. I'm not very eloquent or persuasive. Um, I think I've hopefully gotten better at preaching this craft, and I'm a bit more comfortable with public speaking, but. Um, I have to script everything. Everything I script, okay? The jokes are scripted, right? It says, point out black, we are Protestant theme wristband, okay? It says that right here, right? Like, oh, there's Juan Kwok. Matt Chandler doesn't even know who I am, right? Like Daniel and I, we're going to be able to sit in the speaker section because I have a black band, and they're not going to be like, oh, there's Juan. They're going to be like, who are you, you know? Like, are you food delivery? Or, you know, who are you, you know? But we're freed from our demi-idols, and we're freed from the ultimate idol of ourselves. And therefore, we can perform out of our love for God, out of our affections for God, in a response to God. And as I was reading this, um, the commentaries and just... um, thinking about this, I, I thought, you know, of when I, I, I am freed of my performance to perform. You know when I'm freed? Or when I know that I'm freed of these things experientially? It's when I don't, when I don't, I don't want to say when I don't care, because if you get to the point where you absolutely don't care about what anyone says, then you're proud and arrogant. But when I don't care to the extent that my identity is not founded in criticism, whether it be rightful criticism or wrongful criticism, good opinions that I can grow from, but even bad opinions that I need to grow from, it's when I'm there that I'm free to perform for the Lord, right? It's when I'm not so worried about whatever image I don't have or do have. It's when I don't take myself so seriously, all aspects of myself. It's when I start thinking of myself less, And when I start thinking of others more, and that leads us to our final point, freedom to be slaves. You're freed from your performance to perform, but you're also freed from your bondage to sin, the curse, condemnation, guilt, Satan, to be slaves? What's going on here? What is Paul getting at? He's saying you can now use your newfound freedom as an opportunity. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, the love you have in Christ Jesus, serve one another. 
Use your newfound freedom, freedom from your past and your present and your future, freedom from that conscience that that condemns you, freedom from performing with these unrighteous, self-righteous motivations, freedom to perform for the glory of God and for the good of your fellow brother and sister. You're freed to be a bondservant to one another, to your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this amazing quote from D.L. Moody. Dwight Lyman Moody says, The measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many people he serves. The measure of a man of God is not how many servants he has, but how many people he serves. That, 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 that's an amazing quote. In light of the truth that the word of God through Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What were the Galatian, the Judaizers doing to these Galatians? They were manipulating them. They were guilting them. They were using probably their, you know, their um, uh, persuasive eloquence, to, uh, you know, with power to, to, to bring about obedience. To bring about maybe even serving one another as a community of faith. How can we know that we're freed to be slaves and bondservants in the way that the Lord calls us to? when you're being manipulated, when you're hearing from even your pastor or your friend, and you're hearing tinges of, of guilt and other types of manipulation being thrown at you, even then, you can still obey out of obedience to Christ rather than because of the manipulation because of the guilt and persuasion. We are freed to love one another. We are free to serve one another. And yet, the Galatians knew this, but they were experiencing the devouring of one another. They were being consumed by one another. You know, we should be consumed with one another. We should... We should, we should um, learn about one another. We should be consumed in our minds and in our lives with wanting to serve our neighbor as ourselves. But here, amongst the Galatians, they were literally, no, not literally, figuratively biting and devouring, backbiting, gossiping, and not serving as Christ served them. I want to read and close with this. Um, there was a, a man, he was a, a Greek man, second century uh, lawyer. His name was Aristides. And this is what he wrote in his apology to the emperor as he was going from religion to religion, just giving um, kind of an update and a detailed account of what these religions were about. This is what he saw to be true of Christ's followers. But the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth. And as we learn from their writings, they have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom they received commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother, show kindness to those near to them, and whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man, and whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not to others. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they do not eat, for they are pure, and their oppressors they appease. 
and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies and their women, O king, are pure as virgins and their daughters are modest. And their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness in the hope of a recompense to come in the other world. Further, if one or other of them have bondmen or bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods and have, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of the poor passes from the world, each of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for getting into some of the implications that the Galatians, not only the Galatians, are called to understand and live out, but uh, even us here. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to our minds and renewed them. Lord, we pray that this message, this word would sink deep into our hearts. And we pray, I pray, Lord, that whatever changes occur in our hearts from this message, Lord, would be meted out through our hands and through our feet. Lord, use us. Lord, mold us. Lord, transform us. And Father, help us, Lord, to understand who we are as freed men and women in Christ Jesus. Thank you for this time as we continue in our worship. May it bring you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.